Hopefully this recording will work. <laughs> uh, Father, thank you for this day. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful day. Uh, we look around us and we see your glory. Uh, you who have created all things. You uphold all things by the word of your power. You have ordained that we would be alive this morning. You've ordained all our days, the number of our days, everything about our lives you have ordained and you have ordained that we would be here. Uh, we know that your mercies are new every morning. We, knew, we know that you love and care for your people. We know that you give wisdom to those who ask generously and without reproach. Uh, we know that you are working all things for your glory and the good of your people. And so we pray that as we consider and discuss and engage with these important topics, that you would work, that you would bring truth, that would cut through fog and confusion, uh, that would cut through false religion and lies. Uh, we pray that you'd stir faith in our hearts as, as we see a world gone mad, that, that we would not fear or be anxious or be angry, but that we would trust you and love you and love others, that we would know how to care for others and engage with them helpfully through these things. We pray you'd be glorified through this time, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, we titled the seminar Thinking Biblically About Race and Justice. Uh, you know, I wanted to give it like a Puritan title. It's not just thinking. It's thinking, it's feeling, it's loving others, it's engaging well. So it's not just do we understand what the Bible says about these topics. But do we actually believe it? Do we love it? Do we apply it? Do we extend it to others? Are we able to help others? You, you know, you're all in positions of care in the church. Are you able to help others think and engage biblically? Because uh, with any, as with any large group of people, our church is all over the map on these things, right? And the culture is all over the map on these things. And so we have to, uh, and, and probably we ourselves, are in different places in these things. Cultural voices are very loud. So, um, so what I want to do, uh, we've already talked about race a fair bit. You know, Pete did a sermon on racism last uh, summer, fall, whatever that time frame was in our Imago Day series. Talked about it again with the George Floyd uh, killing. Um, and we've talked about that through the years. And we'll talk about that as an implication, an application. But what I want to focus on is justice. Because I think that's actually the big issue is how we think about and understand and apply justice and what our expectations are uh, of, of and for justice and how we do and don't practice justice in our lives and what the culture says justice is. So uh, the way I'm looking at this is I, I have a teaching on justice. I want to get through this, but um, I also, this isn't meant to be really formal, so can't hear me? I can. Yeah. If you can hear me, surely everyone can hear me. Uh, let me see. Is everybody in the Well, maybe we have a speaker out. Okay, sorry. Um, is that blasting anybody out now? No, we're okay. Okay. <laughs> yes. 
it's like that old rock we'll be surprised commercial. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I want to I want to talk about justice. Um, I will have times carved out for Q and A. But if if I'm going along and something's unclear, or you wonder about something, or you're wondering about an application or implication, just jump in. You know, and make sure that this is making sense and this is tracking. Uh, I'll probably say dumb things and wrong things. These are very complicated issues. It's very easy to go astray. If you see Pete go, um, uh, that would be a sign, okay? And of course I want him to jump in as he has anything. So, uh, but what I'm looking to do is talk about justice, uh, talk about some common unjust practices that we may not even recognize, uh, but are incredibly common. Take a break. Then we'll talk about how our culture looks to apply justice to issues of race and some of the unjust implications of that, okay? And then engage with some questions on that as well. So that's, that's kind of how I've set it up. Um, but like I said, it could go anywhere in any way. Uh, and even as, you know, Lori and I were talking about this last night, I was working on it this morning, and every time I talk about it, it goes a little different. So we'll see. Not different truths, just different emphases. Um, so it, the inside cover of the, hand, the Justice Handout, so you've got several handouts there. You've got the book of Justice Primer by Wilson and Booth. Uh, there's not a lot of sound biblical materials on justice. At, at a, like there's academic treatises and historical documents, but like contemporary, you know, uh, reasonably readable, there's not much. There's a lot written on justice. Not a lot of it is biblical. Okay? Uh, and so that, that book, uh, you know, you can make all your caveats about Wilson. He's obviously a controversialist. And, but but uh, a couple things I appreciate about him is he takes the Bible seriously, and he's pastored a long time and applied it for a long time. Okay? So there's, there's a lot of good material in that book, and we wanted to get it into your hands. The Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel came out of uh, kind of the MacArthur-ish camp. Um, it was... Close to two years ago now, I think. Um, very controversial. You know, all the evangelicals love to put out statements, and lots of people sign, and then, well, why didn't you sign, or why did you sign? And I just, I don't sign things, because I don't even want to get into it. And nobody cares, nobody knows me. But, um, but like Moeller or Keller, or, you know, if one of those guys does or doesn't sign a document, it's a big deal. Uh, so this was a controversial document when it came out, but it, it has very solid teaching on these things. Uh, so we want to get that into your hands, too. Uh, but the handout I'm talking about is the one that says justice on the front. Okay, that's going to be our main materials. Um, so the inside cover, I think this is probably my favorite verse on this topic, right? Proverbs 28.5, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. And if you understand that verse, you go a long way to understanding this topic and understanding why our culture is in the waters that it's in. Because justice, God is just. God defines justice. And if you don't seek the Lord, you literally cannot be just, and you can't understand justice. If you do seek the Lord, if you do fear the Lord, if you know him, if you've experienced his love and mercy in your life, you're understanding justice. Okay? And so that, that is, anyone who's in rebellion against God is by definition unjust and doesn't understand justice. Okay, there's a very real sense in which you have to be a Christian to understand justice. 
doesn't mean that everything a non-Christian does is unjust or that they're never fair in their dealings or any of that. But at its root, it's just like Proverbs 1, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't fear the Lord, you're not going to be wise. If you don't fear the Lord, you're not going to understand justice. Okay? And so much of how our, our culture thinks about justice is unjust because they've tried to remove the Lord from the equation. Okay? And what, and what he says about these things. And then I included Micah 6 8 because that's the life verse of every evangelical social justice warrior. Um, you know, he has told you, oh man, what's good? What does the Lord require? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God, it's a wonderful verse. But what almost never happens is that these terms aren't defined. What does it actually mean to do justice? And that's really what I'm hoping that we can answer today. What does it mean to do justice? Because I think the biblical definition of doing justice is actually much broader. And you're doing justice in your life much, much more than you might think. All right, so when, you know, if I were to bring my car to Jerry and, and I had a problem and he fixed it and he got a good part and did it well and at a fair price, he's done justice. And he's loved me by doing that. Right? He, he, doing justice, we'll, we'll get into this, because that's, that's a big part of understanding what should we do as Christians and what should the church be doing. Those are some of the questions I want to ask and answer about these issues, okay? Um, all right, so let's jump in. Uh, page three, what is justice? Um, I think this is the greatest challenge with this topic, is to actually define justice. And I'm not going to define it right now. I just want to give you some representative things. Uh, when, you're, when you're thinking about these things yourself, when you're reading the Bible, when you're engaging with others about them, when you're hearing news reports, when you're you know, having uh, discussions in care group, there, there's two questions that I think go a long way to helping the conversation actually be helpful. The first question is, what do you mean by that? So the question of definition, right? That's unjust. That's not fair. That's not right. That's... Okay, what, do you, what would justice be? Does justice mean that we have to have the same outcome? Okay, uh, for example. The second question is, by what standard? So the question of authority. What's your authority for determining these things? What's your standard of measurement? Okay, so to just make statements uh, about uh, a nation, an ethnicity, uh, uh, sex, uh, and they're just out there and not define them and not understand how you're assessing those things. That's why our conversations are often so productive, unproductive. Okay. So we have to define our terms. We have to uh, be clear on what the standard is. And as Christians, the standard has to be God and his word. Okay. Which is more challenging than we might think. So I got, I got three representative treatments here. One is dictionary.com, which you would think would be safe. It's not, um, but, and we'll talk about that, but uh, I just want you to notice a few things that it calls out. So first, what's justice? Well, it's the quality of being just, right? That's the, the circularity of dictionaries. Um, it, okay, well, that doesn't help me. Uh, it, it's righteousness, it's equitableness, it's uh, moral rightness. Okay, well, that starts to raise, that raises a question. What is moral rightness? Who defines moral rightness? What's the standard of moral rightness. I think it's helpful. Rightfulness or lawfulness, right? The moral principle determining just conduct. Yeah. 
What is that moral principle? Who defines that moral principle? Okay. Uh, and then it goes on. Uh, Grudem in his systematic theology, he's talking about justice in relation to God. Justice is an attribute of God. God is just. And so he's uh, pointing out that in the Hebrew and the Greek, there's only one word group behind the words that we in English translate as righteous and just, righteousness and justice. That's one word group in Hebrew and Greek. And so he says, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right. Okay, all of his ways are just. And is himself the final standard of what is right. And that, that's hugely important. Because uh, what's happened with our cultural understanding of justice is man has become central. And man's standards and our feelings. And if you step back and say, no, God is the standard. And, and all of that he does is just. And so if I look at what God does and I say, that's unjust, I'm sinning. I'm missing something. Okay? Uh, I, I need to... And, and, and uh, so if you struggle to come to embrace Reformed theology or, or struggle to come to embrace complementarianism, you understand these things. Like, and, and you see it in Romans 9, right, where Paul's talking about God's election. God chooses who will be saved. And he says, you'll say to me, well, then how can he find fault? Right? Because who can resist his will? And Paul doesn't go, oh, yeah, I never thought about that. Right? He says, well, who are you, oh, man, to answer back to God? God's, this, God's not unjust just because you think it's not fair that he elects. Okay? And if that doesn't push back on your idea of justice, I don't think you're quite getting it. Like, it seems unfair. Right? But it's not. It's not because God defines justice. And then third, I put Carl Ellis here. And Carl Ellis is an uh, African-American pastor and professor at one of the RTS campuses um, down south, Atlanta, Jackson. I don't remember. Uh, but this, this would be a, a definition that's been, it, I found it on the Gospel Coalition. Um, it's been making the rounds in evangelical circles. And so, and this would be a common perspective, I think, among many in the African-American community, evangelical community. Well, probably beyond evangelical community. Uh, that the American evangelical church has had a, a truncated gospel. A too narrow gospel. And so Ellis talks about this window of righteousness. And it has four pains. Okay, so piety, which he's defining as doing what's right according to God in a narrow sense. That involves devotion and ceremony. So your love for God. Your engagement with God. Okay. Justice, which is doing what's right toward your fellow image bearers. Okay, and he's, he's, a, you say he's aware, he knows that doing right to people is to do right before God. But he's just trying to, you know, illustrate. Personal and then social. So you have personal piety, social piety, right? Personal justice, social justice. And so he's making an argument for social justice. And, and what he's saying um, is that, uh, you'll see it in the last paragraph. Um, he talks about a window of righteousness and then a window of unrighteousness. He says that this is the current state of the American evangelical witness. We focus primarily on the upper left-hand pane of each window, so personal piety. But we, we miss the other three quarters. But we're satisfied that we got 100% and less than 25% of the project. We're not helping or participate in the bigger picture. So uh, he said we need to work together to, to get this bigger picture of, of righteousness. Um, and so to be clear, I, I disagree. And I think he's 
conflating things. So it's not that there's nothing to what he's saying. Uh, you've all, I think you've all, through deacon training, care leader training, had the uh, Bullmore's functional centrality of the gospel, and you remember his three circles. So you have the gospel, and then you've got the doctrines that come out of it, right? And then you've got these, um, what is it called, the implications of the gospel. And, and so obviously anywhere that there's genuine regeneration, anyone becomes a Christian, they bear the fruit of the Spirit, and that has positive societal effect. So you should expect that as Christianity spreads in its influence, that there will be positive effect, including more justice. There will be in that sense, and I'm going to use the phrase societal justice instead of social justice, just to try and keep them separate. Okay? There will be more societal justice, and that is in fact what we've seen in history. The effect of Christianity on the world has been overwhelmingly positive. Right? Lots of negative, because everybody's sinners. But overwhelmingly positive. But what tends to happen is some of the implications of the gospel get hitched to the gospel and become the focus. And this tends to happen especially with younger people who, who aren't um, that impressed with the gospel and are looking for a great cause to live for. Um, uh, but it happens, uh, actually it's, it's really interesting to me, uh, pastorally and anecdotally, uh, the people that I engage with who tend to be the most caught up in these sorts of things tend to be doing the worst in their personal lives. And it's almost like they're looking for something outside of their immediate context, uh, both to be able to compare themselves favorably <laughs> to others and to feel like they're, they're making a positive contribution, they're engaging the world, you know, they're working for change, uh, which usually means like an Instagram post or something, you know, like, uh, whereas the people who I see actually doing justice the most in their personal lives, aren't unconcerned about societal impact. That's not their focus. Um, so anyways, you think about 100 years ago in the American church, 100-ish, uh, America had a big problem with alcohol and drunkenness. And, um, and women especially were fed up with it, with dealing with these drunken men all over the place. And so the temperance movement that led to prohibition uh, was led by women and liberal Protestants by and large. And so these liberal Protestants who weren't very impressed with the gospel had a very different understanding of sin and, and redemption, um, saw this as a great opportunity to make a positive social impact. And so they got on board with this. And that's why when a temperance parade would come to town, you'd have the liberal Protestants out there marching and you'd have the conservative uh, Presbyterians on their porch toasting the parade as they went by. Uh, not because they wanted more drunkenness, but because they're saying, you guys, are, you're missing the point. You're missing, of course, we need to oppose drunkenness. It's a great evil. It's never okay to be drunk. That's rebellion against God. That's sin. And, and the, the effects of it are devastating. You know, we lived in Wisconsin for 10 years, which has a massive problem with drunkenness. I saw all kinds of, uh, of problems and impact of that. Okay, so it's, it's in no way diminishing the evil of drunkenness. But it's just a different understanding of sin and redemption. And so what do we do about these things, right? We, we don't seek to outlaw something that God doesn't make criminal. 
we know that the only way that you actually reduce drunkenness is to change human hearts. And the only way that happens is through the gospel. So instead of making our focus on, we're going to make this illegal, we need to make our focus. We need to see, we need to proclaim the gospel faithfully and love our neighbors so that they can be one to Christ, so they can be transformed, so they don't go out and get drunk. They're not turning to idols to try and satisfy, to try and, you know, um, remove the pain of their life so often, right? They turn to the living God with their trials. Um, but, but that's what happened is these liberal, these mainline uh, Protestant churches had, had left the authority of Scripture first, the, the deity of Christ, the nature of sin, substitutionary atonement, they left all that. They started focusing on social issues. And, and you look at them now, 100 years later, and they're dying, basically dead, right? And, and honestly, why would you go to a mainline church if, if you have the, um, you know, kind of the, the moral prudishness of Christianity without any compelling, you know, supernatural grace? And, you know, if it's just like, well, I'm going to be an upright person, uh, because of this God that I don't really believe in. And, you know, like, it's just, it's silly. Just go be a worldly person. You know, just leave the, leave the, the shell behind. Um, and so that's why liberal churches always die out. They lose the gospel and they die out. It, history's just full of it, right? So, so while I think there's, obviously there is social impiety and social injustice, and the church should be engaged with those things appropriately, those are not themselves the gospel. Okay? The gospel is uh, our souls before God, our rebellion against God, our need for forgiveness from God, and what God has done for us to accomplish those things um, in Jesus Christ. And um, so it is one of my concerns uh, is that the younger people who have grown up in an atmosphere where sin is diminished. And when your sin is not a big deal, Jesus is not a big deal. Right? And, and you need, we're made to live for great causes. And so other great causes come along. Actually, I think it explains a lot of the appeal of the Marvel movies. I, you know, I think there's these, all these savior motifs and these grand causes and these epic battles and, you know, um, and I think it's tragic because they're really shoddy substitutes for the real thing. Um, so that, that's where um, Ellis, there's, there's many writers in this vein. There's many in the American evangelical community, including on the Gospel Coalition and other places, who will advance this kind of perspective. And I'm not saying there's nothing to it that's garbage. No, there's good here. But you have to be discerning and you have to be careful um, and say, okay, is this... This seems like, oh, yeah, this window, and it all makes sense, and okay, but is that actually how the Bible talks about it? And is that actually what the gospel and righteousness are? Uh, and what should be our engagement with these things as Christians? Okay? So I'm just raising those issues at the outset, um, and then we're going to talk about justice. So any quick questions on that before we move into it? Okay. So where do we find ourselves? Um, I'm going to read this just to try and get our thinking going. 
and trying to acknowledge where we are. So we're living in tumultuous times. Protests and riots fill the streets of many of our major cities, and this is not the first time that's happened, but it's interesting this time. Uh, allegations of injustice abound. You think about it every day. You're hearing allegations of injustice every single day, multiple times. You can't go on your social media. You can't go on the Internet. You can't turn on the news without hearing many allegations of injustice. And because of, you know, travel technology and satellites, and it's, it's injustice around the world. Oh, well, the, you know, the president of France did this, and the prime minister in Japan did this, and, the, you know, Putin, who knows what Putin's doing, and he's wrestling a bear bare-chested, and, you know, like, there's, just, there's stuff going on all over the world all the time, and we're aware of so much more than people who lived before these technologies. So we're surrounded constantly by allegations of injustice, uh, and that affects us. It can't not affect us. Uh, hatred and division seem to characterize much of our political discourse. Uh, a new reckoning has arrived. It's a new inquisition, I think, um, that's judging and condemning many of the historical figures in American history. And so I don't know if you saw the mayor of D.C. put together a commission to evaluate monuments and statues in D.C. And they've identified persons of concern, Washington, Jefferson, Columbus, tragic, Franklin, you don't, you don't touch Columbus with the Italians. That's just, okay. Uh, and, and they want to remove or recontextualize, like, the Washington Monument. Okay? So this, this, is, this is a reckoning. This is an inquisition. Um, statues are being torn down. We're told that America is irredeemably racist. Our country was built on slavery. That was our core value. And the oppression of various peoples. So the 1619 Project from the New York Times. And I've footnoted this stuff. You can check it out. Uh, which has been applauded in academia and in the media and in all the, you know, the beautiful people. Um, in the meantime, real historians have come out and said, this is terrible history. It's revisionist history. This is not true to what, yes, America has problems, but not this. Um, so uh, these are complex issues. Uh, there's, there's, there's always more that could be said about something. Um, they're controversial issues, obviously. But one of the most concerning issues for us as Christians ought to be the understanding of justice that characterizes so much of public discourse and behavior. So when we're told that looting is okay because it serves as a form of reparations, which is what a Black Lives Matter organizer in Chicago has said, right? And then when they pressed her on it, she doubled down. No, 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 yeah, it is. This is reparations, right? Or uh, when the rioting began, you probably saw if you're on social media at all, violence is the, is the language of those who've been unheard. Right, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, which he did say that, right? But that's not, he wasn't approving of it. He was condemning of it. He was saying, no, 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 nonviolence is the way we should go. I think this is why people are being violent, but he wasn't approving it, right? He was actually opposing it. But, but people quote it because of the moral authority that Dr. King has in our culture, and they quote it as, oh, well, that's profound. Oh, yeah. You know, and they're approving it. And what we're seeing is wickedness is being justified. So rioting and looting are wickedness, right? These things are not okay. But we're being told that they're okay. And that, that ought to confirm us. And what's especially troubling, I think, is that many Christians affirm these things. They retweet these things. They go, oh, yeah, 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 that's, that's great. So, there's, of course, there's many causes for these things. I think the epidemic of fatherlessness is huge. So the Census Bureau estimates one in, over one in four American children under the age of 18 lives in a home without a father. 
over one in four, right? And in the African-American community, I've seen statistics between two-thirds and three-quarters of African-American children under the age of 18 live in a home without a father. What would the impact of that be? I think it's exactly what we see. I think it probably is the single biggest cause. You know, apart from theological, rebellion against God is the problem, right? But, but fatherlessness is truly epidemic in our country, and that's having a massive impact, uh, in, including how people view authority. Um, but I, I think if you look back generationally to the 60s counterculture, uh, there, there are several things that were major contributors to where we are now, and I'm just calling out four, I'm sure there's others, but hostility to authority, right? All authority is bad. And it's, of course, authority has done very bad things, but saying all authority is bad, we must oppose it, you can't tell me what to do. Feminism, sexual idolatry, and the therapeutic worldview. So all four of these are directly opposed to Christianity. But, but they've also led to a transformation in how we think about justice and what we think justice is. So just briefly, hostility to authority, that's as old as the garden. Uh, we've talked about this in different series. All of the evil that we see around us is a direct result of rebellion against the authority of God first and then against the lesser authorities that God has instituted. So we just have to be really clear on that. It's like, oh yeah, of course, that's obvious, but we don't always think that way because of especially like therapeutic worldview. All of the evil we see is rebellion against God without exception. There's, there's nothing that you can suffer that can justify evil or wickedness in response. It doesn't matter what you've been through. Nothing justifies sin in response. Right? This is Parenting 101, right? Uh, Josiah comes up and says, Greta hit me, right? And I, so I call Greta. Greta, did you hit your brother? Yeah, but he came up and pulled my hair. Da, da, da. Okay, well, that's a different story, isn't it? Then if Josiah just, you know, Greta came up and hit him. Oh, there was a reason. And you actually, you know, and that's what you got to do. You got to sort of like, what went on here? Let's understand the situation, right? Uh, so, no, it's not okay that Greta hit Josiah, but it's a different story if she just did it out of the blue versus she did it in retaliation. But they're both sinful, but we have to understand the dynamics, okay? So all of this is rebellion against God, hostility to authority. Second, feminism. Obviously, that's hostility to authority. Uh, it's a revolt against God and his design. It's, it's told women for decades that feminine godliness is second class and unsatisfying. I don't know if we appreciate the impact of that on girls growing up all around them. Every message is, among other things, feminine godliness is second class and unsatisfying. It's, it's at best settling. Right? It, it's not your best life. It's certainly no American Girl doll is ever going to choose feminine godliness. I mean, the historical ones did, but that was, they moved past that quickly. Um, so, and that in order to be liberated, women need to act more like men. And I don't mean godly masculinity, I mean ungodly masculinity. Right? You need to give yourself to your career and your interests. You need to not be tied down by family and children. Right, And so that's why abortion is the sacrament of feminism, because it frees women from this constraint of having to bear and care for children. Right? And so a woman can't be all she can be if she's burdened by children. This is the culture. This, you know, and so all the injustices that come through that view. 
And then our understanding of justice has also been feminized. And again, I don't mean godly femininity, because godly femininity is just. I mean ungodly femininity. Right? And, and that's tied to the therapeutic. Uh, third, sexual idolatry. There's many, many injustices. Abortion, gay marriage, hookup culture, fatherlessness. Right? It's, it's elevated sexuality to the most important thing about us. And of course, by linking it to the civil rights agenda, it's been incredibly successful. Right? And so, um, one of the ways you see this is in the language that you use about homosexuality. You, you, we've been, uh, the, the correct term is jammed. <laughs> like, you would never call it sodomy, because that's offensive, even though it's a biblical term. Right? Um, you, you, you're, you're supposed to emphasize compassion and understanding for the homosexual. Of course, we should have compassion for people who struggle with sin. But the Bible has some pretty strong condemnatory language of it. And pastors in Canada have been arrested for basically just teaching what the Bible teaches about its hate speech. Right? There's a view of justice there that hasn't yet, I think it probably will, if things don't change, move to like pedophilia. So you can condemn pedophilia. You can't condemn homosexuality. That's, that's lacking love and compassion. And isn't that interesting? Their culture, it, it used to be gross and the ick factor, and then it moved to tolerable, and then fully accepted, and then must be uh, wholeheartedly endorsed. Okay? Those are justice issues. You have to recognize that that affects how, how you think about and engage them. And then the therapeutic culture has really transformed our understandings of justice, and so sin has all but vanished, right? What's sinful anymore? Certain racial epithets, uh, certain acts against women. Um, I can't think of many. <laughs> there, there's a few things that would be roundly condemned. Not many, right? Everything else is kind of, well, that's your values, right? Or, oh, he's got a syndrome, or he's got a disease. We don't have drunks anymore. We have alcoholics. Right? They're suffering from a disease. No, they're, they're rebelling against God. These are very different understandings of life and justice. Okay? And they affect us in how we think about these things. Um, so all this has led to a massive shift in what we think about justice. In one sense, this is nothing new. Right? This is all the way back to Genesis 3. In America, in our short history, there have been ebbs and flows in the influence of Christianity on how people think about these things. But I think the speed and the breadth of this latest onslaught are very concerning, okay? which is why we've scheduled this seminar to talk about these things, because it, it uh, it's coming hard. And um, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, it doesn't matter who wins the election. God's still sovereign. We're not to put our hope in princes. On the other hand, uh, it matters profoundly who wins the election as far as what conditions we're going to face. <laughs> and what agendas are going to be advanced, right? And so we have to recognize that and engage with that. Um, and so we have to know what the Bible teaches about justice, and we have to apply it faithfully and broadly, and I think this is a really important term, courageously, okay? Because if, we, if we're faithful to the Bible, but we don't apply it to the place where it's under fire in the culture, we're not actually being faithful to the Bible. If we don't apply it where it's going to cost us something to apply it, we're not actually being faithful. 
And it's interesting when you read the end of Revelation, one of the sins that people go to the lake of fire for, it's actually the first in one of the lists, is cowardice. We have to be courageous. Because we know God, and this is his world, and he's sovereign, and we can trust him, and we must not fear. Right? So to, to speak courageously, to act courageously, not obnoxiously, right? Not obnoxiously, but courageously. Out of a, a humble but um, full-hearted conviction. This is what God says, and he's good and right. You know, and so when you oppose your relative who's embracing homosexuality, and they're saying, you hate me, and you're saying, no, it's actually because I love you that I'm saying you, you shouldn't do this. Because I know this won't go well for you. Because this is God's world, and you're creating God's image, and you're rebelling against God, right? Um, that, that is hate speech to a lot of people. Biblically, that is real love. But it's probably going to cost you, right, culturally. So, but you're actually doing justice in that. And so in Philippians 2, Paul talks about how the church may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's, if you look at church history, in the times when things are darkest, the church shines the brightest. The alternatives are starkest. Okay? So, um, and when, when there's not a sharp alternative, you get a lot of cultural Christianity that has a lot of people who are going to be shocked when they wake up after they die. You know what I mean? Like, they just think of themselves as Christians. Because, well, you know, I walked the aisle, I signed the card, I was baptized... But no fear of the Lord, no love for the Lord, no real faith in Christ. Um, but it was, you know, culturally it was really easy to be a Christian. Uh, and so when things, when it gets harder, the church actually tends to do better historically. Um, and to sort of shine, you know, um, shine as lights in the world. Obviously the darker the world is, the more you see the light. So, uh, any questions on that before we jump into foundations here. Okay. This is, um, I got several sections. This is the longest, but I, I don't think it'll be real long. But I, I want to try and lay out a positive biblical vision of justice. Okay? And what the Bible includes in justice. I'm sure there's more that could be said. Um, but the foundation of all of this is that God is just. Right? God is justice. Um, so you, you see, I mean, you could multiply probably hundreds of verses. Good and upright is the Lord, right? All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Isaiah 61, I, the Lord, love justice, right? I hate robbery and wrong. God is just. And, and the implications of that, uh, justice is an attribute of God. It's his character. So the Psalms, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are all your rules. And you see the connection there. Right? Because he's righteous, what he says to do is righteous. It's right. It's true. Uh, Habakkuk 1, you who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Uh, Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Okay. So God, justice is an attribute of God. It's who he is. It's the character of God. He is the just God. Justice is not a standard that exists outside of God. Okay, there's nothing outside of God that judges him, that we evaluate God by. It, it is who he is. 
And so he defines justice. And so what he says is just, is just, even if you feel in your bones that it is profoundly unjust. I think Rosaria Butterfield talks about this in Secret Thoughts of Unlike a Convert, where she felt that being a lesbian was, you know, who she was at her core. She thought she had this wonderful, clean life and filled with hospitality and friendship and purpose and meaning. And the Bible comes along and says, you are in rebellion against your creator, right? Which felt profoundly wrong to her. And part of what she talked about is what happened is the Bible inside of her needed to become bigger than her so it could reinterpret life for her. Okay, so for us, being born in original sin and total depravity, growing up in a fallen world, being surrounded by rebellion against God, there's a real challenge for us to understand justice and to not, Lewis has this book, God in the Dock, which is what they call the witness box in England. And we're going to put God there and say, okay, God, you give account for this, and give account for this. And, you know, um, and people always say, what are you going to ask God when you get to heaven? And depending on what you mean by that, like, God's not going to be like, okay, well, let me explain. Here's what I was doing. Right? When you see God, you're going to say, what, what does Isaiah say? What was me? Right? Who, who, did, who did I think I was? Right? You see the holiness of God. You realize, okay, who am I to, to think that I can sit above God and judge him? And tell them that it's wrong. Um, so, uh, and so that's part of what's interesting in the Isaiah 55 passage that we all know. You know, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. But look at the context. He says, "Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord." It's in this context of, of righteousness and unrighteousness, of evil and justice that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, okay? So justice, there's not a standard of justice that we judge God by. God is the standard of justice, okay? That's really important. Then page eight, uh, because God is just, he opposes and punishes evil. You see that in the Psalm, look at the connection. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked, right? Here's the truth. Here's the application of that truth. Because he's righteous, he has cut the cords, he's punished the wicked. Um, and Hebrews 10 talks about the person who's been exposed to the gospel and to the church and, and the truth of who Jesus is. And, and it talks about the punishment that they deserve. They've trampled underfoot the Son of God. They've profaned his blood. Um, it, it, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay, so God opposes evil and wickedness. He, uh, in what probably should be surprising to us, uh, that this category exists, not that he would do it, but God rewards and supports righteousness. Right? If we know our sin in our hearts, that, that we would get the support and reward of God in spite of who we are and what we've done. Right? Um, and so, uh, you know, little things like James 4, which is quoting Proverbs 3, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Second Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. I find that a very helpful verse for the idea of courage. I'm about to do something I really don't want to do, and I don't think it'll go well. Right? <laughs> what do I do? Well, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. He gives strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. So, Lord, help me to walk in the fear of you. Help me to honor you in this interaction so that I can do this 
out of faithfulness to you, right, for your glory. Um, Deuteronomy 10, it, it, it's more of this is the expectation of God, right? So what does he require of you? But to fear him, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him, and to keep his commandment and statutes, right? And then as we do that, he rewards us. So those are some of the implications of the truth that God is just. It also means, point three, that all of God's ways are just. And this would be another one of my favorite verses on this topic. Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, and it's not talking about Dwayne Johnson. Uh, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This is who God is. Uh, if you don't know who The Rock is, he was a professional wrestler. Just, yeah. so, uh, so all of God's ways are just. Okay? Uh, which again, that, that's such a helpful, um, it's a profoundly settling truth. So uh, that song, Whate'er My God Ordains Is Right. Familiar with that song? Right? And so when you're going through suffering and tragedy, no, uh, I am constitutionally prohibited from singing. Yeah, it's cruel and unusual. Um, to have the truth that this, this situation I'm going through may not be good. You know, cancer, broken family, tragedies in life, not good. But that God has ordained it for me, and it's right, and he's good, right? The rock, his work is perfect. So when God ordained this for me, he didn't make a mistake. For all his ways are justice. I will not be able to appear before God and say, God, when you did that, that was unfair. That was unjust. Right? So it's a wonderfully settling truth to let our souls be settled in. All of God's ways are just. All of them, without exception. So I can trust him. Okay? Okay. Uh, and of course, that doesn't necessarily align with human standards, or it's probably better to say uh, human standards often don't align with God's uh, standards. And it doesn't, it's not necessarily accomplished in human timelines. It's not necessarily accomplished in this age. It's one of the challenges of injustice. And so you see that in 2 Peter 3, where he's talking about, uh, you know, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. That's in the context of, just, of judgment. And injustice, right? So the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right? So it's actually God's patience that um, restrains the immediate and full execution of justice in this world. It's actually his mercy. Right? Uh, Does Paul talk about that? Uh, That the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Right? Uh, and then, uh, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away at the war, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then, here's the application. So what are we to do with these truths? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Right? What ought these truths to produce in us? The, the idea of both God's patience and his um, impending justice. He's being patient and merciful, and justice is coming. What should that do? It should produce lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Um, And it goes on. So, all of God's ways are just. 
Fourth, God establishes all authority on the earth and justice is part of their purview. So now we're starting to get to some of how justice walks out on this earth. And so authority is a big part of that, right? That all authorities are instituted by God. Romans 13, you're very familiar with this. Uh, Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. The ruler is God's servant. That's a very important truth for understanding how authority is to work. And he says, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Who gave the ruler the sword? God did. God gave civil government authority to execute justice. Okay, he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so, um, you know, Matt Randolph has a role in this world that includes force and coercion as part of his um, authority in ways that would be generally inappropriate for me, right? Um, now, if somebody broke into my house, then a level of force and coercion would be appropriate. But, and, and even with my children, there's a level of force and coercion. I know uh, that's so offensive, uh, right? But it is a, it, the nature of authority is coercive. And it, that's not all there is to it, obviously, but there has to be an element of coercion or, or else you don't have authority, whether it's physical coercion, uh, some sort of spiritual consequence, right? But there is a, we are going to do this even if you don't want to do this, okay? Depending on the authority, depending on the relationship. And so for Matt to arrest someone and put them in handcuffs, presumably against their will, right? That's appropriate. That's just, that's a God-given role. And we should be glad for that, okay? Do injustices happen? Of course they do, right? But that doesn't mean that, that the whole institution is corrupt by definition. No, the institution is given by God and it's a good thing. Now, now those in authority need to recognize that they are God's servant for the good of those under their authority. And when authorities don't recognize that, that's when authority goes bad, right? Authority that sees those under them as their servants for their good, that's where you get problems. Um, but, but that there is such a thing as authority um, who have justice as part of their purview, that's God's design. And we need to affirm that and embrace that. And you see that in Ephesians 6, 2 with fathers at the end there. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. When you execute discipline on your children, you should be upholding justice. Right? Your child has committed an unjust act. And, and you're both punishing for that act and you're training and promoting righteousness and justice in its place. That's, that's part of the authority of parents. Um, and, and when authorities, so authorities can use that authority selfishly. Authorities can also fail to embrace the responsibilities that their authority entails. And then what happens is other authorities inevitably. So how much of the police execution or use of, of force and coercion comes down to parental failure to execute justice in their roles? A, a pretty good amount of it. I don't, you know, who knows what the percentage is, but it's not two. <laughs> it's pretty high, right? And so when authorities fail, when parents fail to exercise authority, 
when, when husbands and fathers fail to exercise authority, when uh, a, a, an employer fails to properly exercise authority in the business place, right? When, when we fail, when pastors fail to exercise authority properly in the church, other authorities get involved because you create problems, right? So it's really important for authorities to, to recognize and embrace the justice that's required so a parent who doesn't deal with their children's sins because they want their child to be their friend or, or it's inconvenient to them, they're actually sinning against their child. They're sinning against others, too, because what they're doing is they're pushing their problems onto other people. Right? The husband who, who fails to care for his wife is pushing her onto other people. Okay? So it's, it's just an important aspect of understanding this. Uh, so human, uh, five, human justice requires due process, right? God doesn't need process. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. God doesn't have to say, now, what was your side again? Okay, now, what did you, right? God knows all things. He, he, he is fully just. He, he's in control. Humans are not. We're very, very limited. And so we need process. And you see it with Paul and Festus, where he's saying to Festus, look, I'm, I'm speaking true and rational words. You know about these things. Uh, I'm persuaded none of these has escaped your notice. This has not been done in a corner. Right? There's accusations against me. You know what's going on here. He's appealing to process. Just employ the basic you know, elements of Roman justice, and you'll see that I'm innocent. That's basically what he's saying. Right? He's appealing to process. Um, and so what, is, what does due process include? And one of the things I think you'll see is that uh, so much of American jurisprudence is affirming biblical principles. These things aren't just American civics. These are biblical truths. Uh, so due process includes identifying and employing due authorities, and that's the idea of jurisdiction. So Hebrews 13, um, we've talked about this before, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. So what, what charge do we have God before God as pastors? We, we are charged to keep watch over the souls of those gods entrusted to our care. What's the um, accountability for that? We will give account to God for that. That's not the only accountability, but that's, that's obviously the biggest part. Who are we responsible for? What's my jurisdiction as a pastor? It's not every Christian everywhere. It's not every Christian in Lancaster, right? It, it's the members of our church. That's who I'm accountable for. So it would be unjust for me to seek to exercise a pastoral role in the life of someone who's not a member of our church. Right? Just like it would be unjust of me to parent your child or for you to parent my child. That's not my role. That's not your role. We have our jurisdictions. Right? And so to understand that, we, we have these responsibilities given to us by God. And this is starting to answer the question of how should we think about and engage in justice in the world? Well, the first question you have to ask is, what are my vocations? And I don't mean your career. I mean that in the theological sense of what has God called you to? What roles and responsibilities has he given you? And are you fulfilling those things? Okay, so the idea of jurisdiction is getting at that. Uh, we do have some level of authority with one another. You have some level of authority in the life of any Christian anywhere because you're brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? And so you're on a trip wherever in Europe and, and you, you're, it's a Christian tour and you see a Christian or at least a professing Christian behaving in an ungodly way, you have some authority to go to them and say, hey, brother, what are you doing? Like, I know we're in Germany, but you can't go out and get drunk at night. 
That's not okay. That would be appropriate because you're a brother in Christ, right? You have that level of authority. And, and actually, Matthew 18 is very interesting. And then obviously within the church, you have an even more obligation authority. Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is a justice issue. So if, if you're sinned against by your brother or sister, and it's not a small thing that you can't over, you can just overlook, that's actually something that needs to be addressed. And you don't address it, you're disobeying Christ. You're perpetuating an, unjust, an injustice against your brother or sister because you're not, you're not fulfilling the obligation that you have to them before God as a brother or sister in Christ. We're called to do this with one another. It, should, it needs to be um, by God's word and not our personal preferences. It needs to be wise and gracious and, you know, um, we're not trying to set this context of just constant, you know, hey, I see this, I see, you know. No, no, that's not how we're meant to live. But if there's a significant problem, if there's a pattern of, of sin, and we see it in our brother or sister's life, and, and it's against us, and we don't address it, we're failing. We're failing to fulfill our role, our vocation. We're all called to be brothers and sisters to one another in Christ, Right? That's a justice issue. So it, it includes that, that, that there's jurisdiction there. Second, due process includes the presumption of innocence. So Deuteronomy 19, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong. On the only evidence of two or three witnesses. Uh, Acts 24, Paul at the end is saying, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. That's not much of a defense unless there's a presumption of innocence. So what I understand of the Napoleonic Code is that you, you had to prove your innocence. There's actually a presumption of guilt and that that was the law in Mexico, at least when I was living down there. That's a very different standard than the biblical standard. The biblical standard is if someone has an accusation, they need to prove it. It's not enough to just have an accusation. Now think about that in our culture. That's one of the primary injustices in our culture. It's, all, it's enough to have an accusation. And there are some accusations that you will never recover from. Like, I could stand up here and accuse any one of you of certain things that there would be people who, for the rest of your life, would think poorly of you because you were accused of it. Just because you were accused of it. Even if it was clearly proven to be malicious and, and untrue, you would be ruined in, rep, in reputation with the group. Okay, So this, this is a serious, serious thing. It's why in 1 Timothy 5, it says, don't admit a charge against an elder apart from two or three witnesses. Because the reputation of the elder is, is vitally important. Okay? But that's not just for elders. This is a biblical standard, right? Deuteronomy 19. Uh, of course, Proverbs 18, you know, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Um, related to this C, due process includes biblical standards of proof. So... Later in Deuteronomy 17, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, the one who's to die shall be put to death. And then 1 Timothy 5, that I just referenced. So, you need to think about this. A witness doesn't actually have to be an eyewitness. It could be, it could be a video. It could be a letter. It could be other evidence. But imagine that there's three Hebrews out in a field, and, and um, the first man kills the second man, and the third man witnesses it. 
and goes to the authorities and says, you know, Abel uh, killed Bob, and I, Cain, just ABC, okay, uh, witnessed it. We can't prosecute Abel on one witness. He'll get away with it. Even though he murdered Bob. If that's all we have, this Cain saying he killed him and Abel saying, no, I didn't. He gets away with it. That seems profoundly unfair. Now, if we can find the body, if we can find other evidence, right? So, and our options are not um, do nothing about it or, or execute the death penalty on Abel. Our option is this is a very serious allegation and the due authorities need to engage it. Okay, but it does seem like part of the biblical standard of justice is that it's better for the guilty to get away with it than for the innocent to be punished. I, I don't know how you escape that from this, these principles of presumption of innocence and biblical standards of proof. It means some people who do things in this life will get away with it in this life. They will not get away with it. And that's where, you know, final justice is very important. You know, Ecclesiastes 12, all will be heard. God will give, you know, every man will give account for all that he's done. Nobody gets away with it. Nobody gets away with it. But in this life, you can get away with a lot. Okay, and, and if you know history at all, you know that lots of people have gotten away with a lot <laughs> all over the place. And if you know your own life at all, you know you've gotten away with things. I, I still, it's interesting. Every once in a while, I remember being a kid, going into a grocery store and stealing, or a, a, a convenience store and stealing a pack of baseball cards. It comes to mind. Uh, and I, I loved baseball cards, you know, and just the idolatry of that. And that I would do that. And I got away with it. Nobody ever caught me. All right? I, I won't get away with that before God. God knows I did that. And, you know, thankfully, repented. Christ forgives me. But, but earthly authorities. That's one of the reasons I'm not going to make this recording public. I don't want to. <laughs> but you but understand, like, we get away with things, right? You, you speed. Like, I just went to Iowa. I got away with a lot of speeding. Okay? <laughs> It's 18 hours. <laughs> so, anyways. So, uh, presumption of innocence, biblical standards of proof. Uh, so, but, so, I applied that to murder. Let me just apply it this way, too. So, and let, let me reverse the sexes. So, a husband comes to you and says, my wife is abusing me. What do you do? If that's all you have, and she says, no, no. And all you have is their testimony. What do you do? Well, pastorally, if they're members of our church, what I can do is engage them, press them, charge them, right? But I can't believe either one of them fully and say, you know, no, she didn't, or yes, yes, she did. Like, I, I have to engage with biblical standards of justice, and if at the end of the day we don't have any other evidence or testimony, all I can do is charge them before God that, hey, these are serious allegations, right? And, and one of you has to be lying. And God will not be mocked. And it's far better to repent now than to be found out. 
right? I can give those kinds of charges. But then say, you know, six months later, uh, his wife flies into a rage and grabs a kitchen knife and stabs him. And he lives. But of course, he leaves the church and he says, you know, I told those pastors she was doing that. Nobody believed me. And da, 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 right? And what's going to happen? Culturally, everybody said, yeah, they're the worst. And da, 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 right? Even though uh, we handled it justly. Right? We couldn't do what he wanted us to do because there wasn't biblical standards of proof. We didn't wash our hands of it. We engaged it fully with all that we could biblically. But you reach a certain point where it's just like, hey, we're limited and we don't know. Right? Um, and, you know, obviously I'm, there's, there's a lot more to a story like that. If that, that's where things go down, you're saying, look, if anything happens, you must call the police. You need to bring others in. There's like, so there's a lot there, but just, I'm just trying to make it a very simple point of we need to have biblical standards of proof in how we think about accusations, even very serious accusations. Now, obviously, the more serious the accusation, the, the higher the level of concern and the more time and process and engagement that needs to be given to it. Okay? Um, you know, a, a, a husband says, my wife was really rude for me when I got home from work. Okay, we can talk about that. that that's not nearly the concern of, you know, she's beating me. Okay? Those are two very different things. Um, but uh, biblical standards of proof. Okay? Uh, due process includes proportional penalties for false accusations. This is something I think has been almost lost in our culture. So if malicious witnesses arise to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, and they'll inquire diligently. And if you've accused falsely, you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So the false accuser should suffer the penalty that the other person would have received if they had been convicted. And I want you to notice, uh, who does this? Well, it's before the Lord, priests and judges. There's your jurisdiction, right? There's your due authorities. What do they do? They inquire diligently. There's your due process, right? So they're using biblical standards of proof and they're engaging all these things and they discover a false accusation. Then there should be a penalty for that. That doesn't happen in our culture, right? False accusations all the time, and we just move on. That's wickedness. That's a pretty significant cultural wickedness, I think, okay? That affects our concepts of justice. And then finally, um, this, this is the, uh, probably the, the single most um, essential truth, okay? The essence of justice is impartiality. This, this is the bottom line. This is the, um, you know, to use a Latin, the sine qua non. If you don't have this, you don't have justice. If you don't have impartiality, it's not just. And again, if you know your own heart at all, you know how difficult it is to be impartial. Okay? But you see it over and over in Scripture. God shows no partiality. Peter with the vision of the unclean beasts. Uh, God shows no partiality. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Leviticus 19, you shall do no injustice in court. And look at the two sides. You should not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. So you can't be a socialist and you can't be a royal, right? You, you, don't, you don't say, well, the poor are by definition oppressed and so we must be partial to them. And you can't say the great are by definition above such things and so we must defer to them. No, you have to be impartial. Uh, in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. 
So it's saying, if you are partial to the poor or defer the great, you're unrighteous. Okay, that's not just. Uh, Deuteronomy 1, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. Right, so you can't, and James talks about this, that if the rich person comes in and you're deferential to them, you're sinning, you're being unjust. So, uh, and then he says, you shall not be intimidated by anyone, which is referring, obviously, to the great For the judgment is God's. You understand? If you understand that God's standard is the issue, then who cares who this person is before you? It doesn't matter if they're great. It's God's judgment. It's his glory that's at stake. Okay? And then, yeah, some other examples. So let's let's talk about um, two examples that I think, uh, one big and national and one local, that we, and I just, I don't want to get into the weeds of all the details on these things, but I want us to try and think through and apply justice. So, so the, the death of George Floyd, uh, was that an example of racism? What, what did the world say about that? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> right. And, and the, um, the imagery of a white man with his knee on the neck of a black man who's saying, I can't breathe, and he dies. It's very understandable, right? It's a tragedy. This is a person creating the image of God, dying on video, and that we have access to such things is disturbing. But, um, but that this happens, too, is disturbing. This is tragic. Is it racism? I think the biblical answer is we don't know. Unless you have some information I don't have, we don't know. Right? Because that would require a level of knowledge of the heart that we don't know. We don't know what was in uh, Chauvin's heart as he was kneeling on George Floyd's neck. We don't know what their history is. We don't know what happened before the video. We don't know what happened after the video. We, you know, there's so many things we don't know. But culturally, that has ignited a really worldwide firestorm. Um, and it's so interesting that different groups all around the world have latched onto this. Uh, and, and, so, and what's absent is biblical standards of justice. Right? So, you, so you, you look at this and it looks like a malicious and willful murder of a man by kneeling on his neck in cold indifference. And then I think it was this week, uh, the defense attorney comes out and says, no, actually he died of drugs and there was all, all this other stuff going on. Right, uh, which is to be expected, that there's going to be conflicting accounts and we need to have due process and the authorities who are responsible need to be responsible and engage that, right? Guess who's not responsible for that? Millions of people who instantly judged and condemned and, right? Um, and it's so interesting to me that there's such a massive, it seems, pent up, you know, I'm going to comment on everything out there. I'm going to issue judgments on everything out there because I can look at something in an instant and know that's right, that's wrong, that's just, that's unjust. And, um, you know, Paul talks about that in Romans 2 um, that I get uh, on page 13. He says, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. 
We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Right? And so all these, and, and that's what Jesus was saying in the verse that our, our culture loves to quote, you know, judge not. <laughs> um, but yet there's so many judgments being made. And the force of that, the cultural force of that, and how that affects how we think about justice. And so, you know, the options aren't to just say, uh, this is blatant racism and police brutality. No, this, you know, this must be a criminal and the police were fully justified. It's, no, okay, we don't know. And, and, and there would have to be a process to know what went on there. And I'm not authorized to engage that process. And, and it's not that I shouldn't care, and it's not I should care. Uh, although, I, again, I think because of our access to information, the expectation uh, of what we should care about, when you think, you think about, like, I mean, you can, you can say you care. You can say you're going to pray for something, right? But what you can actually care about and who you can actually pray for is actually quite limited. We're very limited people. I, and, and we're more aware of tragedy and injustice. And I just, I'm sorry, I can't care about all those things. I can't pray for all those things. I, God didn't call me to carry all those things. So that's going back to the doctrine of vocation. What has God called me to care about? Every tragedy everywhere? Every injustice everywhere? No. no he's called me to care about the tragedies and injustices in my family, in my church, in the, in the relational and, and vocational responsibilities that he's given me. You'll see that in Galatians 6, and we talked about this with the deacons, you know, that we should, as, as far as possible, do, do good to all men, and especially to those of the household of faith. There's a priority, right? So we need to have priorities of care and priorities of, you know, and so, and we need to have a broader understanding of how we're actually doing justice in our vocations. Um, does that make sense on George Floyd and how, how to think about and assess that and the injustice of just instantly right we shouldn't, we shouldn't instantly go either way yeah, yeah. you know in, in the ramifications of that now and this happens you know not just in the whenever whenever there is you know, more information comes out Right. It's, it's institutional racism. And it's such a it's such a shame because the truth is there. Right. You know, but people already make judgments. Absolutely. And and that's what, well and that's the problem with the internet is because justice does require time. Uh, it, it by the time it comes out, <laughs> everybody's already made their judgments and moved on. Which is unjust, right, and unhelpful. And so as Christians we have to do better. Right. We, we, we're not to join with the crowds in affirming or condemning. Or honestly, I just feel like, don't you have enough problems in your own life to deal with that you really need to engage all these other things? Right? Now, it, it's, that's one thing. It's another thing to recognize that certain issues can affect my brothers and sisters in the church. Right? Who have connections for various reasons. Uh, and so I could think, oh, well, this is probably affecting so-and-so for, because of this connection. Okay, well, then even though 
I wouldn't need to, it sounds crass, but care about that issue at the level um, generally because it's, it's just, it's so far outside of my responsibility for God. For this person's sake, I might care about it and engage it as a way to love them, right? Um, but that's a very different thing. Who am I really caring about there? That person who God has brought into my circle vocationally, right? Not every supposed or real injustice in the world. The other uh, example I wanted to talk about is Andrew Goslin, right? So here we have uh, someone who was uh, moving towards membership in the church, and I think you're pro- all probably aware it was most of you. He was arrested, um, and that was a, so. I'm just talking about things that are public knowledge, okay? Arrested for assaulting a police officer and, and a, a whole variety of altercations there. Um, how are we to apply biblical standards of justice to that situation? Right. What, what's our, what does presumption of innocence look like? Biblical standards of proof, uh, jurisdiction, due authority. Right. How do we, uh, so we recognize that the arrest report was written by duly authorized agents of the state. There were two of them. Okay. Uh, that fits biblical standards of proof. That's not the end of due process, right? Andrew deserves his day in court. And so the presumption of innocence means it would be wrong for us to condemn him. Biblical standards of justice also mean it would be wrong for us to say, oh, he must be innocent and defend him. And and that's where other factors have to weigh in. So are these minor uh, charges or significant? No, these are significant charges. What do we know of the character of the man? What other publicly accessible acts has he done that we know about that would help us to assess his character? Then what have been your private interactions with him that would help you to assess his character? Those things have to go into how you think about. And then you have to think about things like, is there any threat that we should deal with in this? Right? These, these are all uh, biblical standards of justice. And so when Doug sent out the email and said, you know, this is what's in the news. I want you to be aware. Uh, encourage you not to pass judgment. Right? He's not saying don't have a thought. He's not saying uh, don't uh, have inclinations one way or the other. He's not saying don't do anything about this. He's saying don't issue the verdict of innocent or guilty without knowing what's actually happened because that would be unjust. Right? Honor biblical standards of justice and how you think about it and engage a situation. And then, then it gets into your areas of jurisdiction. So what responsibility do you have? Maybe you have a friendship with the Goslins. So you would have, or maybe you don't have any relationship at all. Or maybe your kids play together. Or, right, like all these things would require different responses from you depending on your vocational interaction with it. Okay? So, um, but, and, and we have responsibility as pastors to protect the church, both theologically and, and physically, right? And so we have to engage with those things. That's part of our vocation. And we had actually uh, already been in a process of encouraging them to find another church before this all went down because of how Andrew had interacted with us about our process of raising up deacons, 
Okay? And it was just clear in those interactions that he was not going to recognize any authority, any spiritual authority over him. And so he said, you know, we encourage you to go somewhere else where you can gladly follow the leadership of that church. Okay? Um, does that make sense? just to use another public situation, Brent Wetzel, when that all went down, he, he was that engaged, he's a member, and so we engaged the process of church discipline, right? It hasn't been walked out yet, it's in process. But that, that sort of thing, that's, we're saying this is a credible and serious allegation, you're a member of our church, we have authority and responsibility here, we have to engage this, right? So that, that's how, uh, that's how those things walk out. So, yeah, Corey. Is, is there any effect that um, it, it would have on like our understanding of these things when, when it is the, the bearer of the sword or the magistrate that is being accused of the wrongdoing? Like, in, in, in the case of like um, issues of, of police brutality and things, uh-huh. and there's there's um, just just in, in talking to people who um, that I know, they're all rah rah about this, you know. That I try to you know provide some balance. There's there's this sense of like, well, we can't. We can't trust the magistrate to assess itself whether it is like you know we can't trust the justice system to decide the justice system is unjust because you know and so we're going to go and march out the street until they change or you know right which obviously there's flaws in that thinking but like how um how do we think about that when when it is the one who should be evaluating justice that is being accused of injustice sure yeah that i mean that's a huge that's a great question that's a huge question um, so in America, and this is, I didn't even really get into that in Romans 13, but the idea that the, the um, authority is God's servant, is himself accountable or herself accountable to God. Um, and in America, because of the rule of law and our constitution, uh, we have means as citizens to appeal and to engage that, you know, uh, uh, a classic 
monarchy wouldn't. You know what I mean? Um, and so depending on your form of government, your options are different. But, um, so yes, it matters. Like we know every authority is a sinner, right? There's no authority that's not a sinner, other than God. Um, so do authorities do poorly at times? Yes. Do authorities sin willfully at times? Yes. Um, I think going back to those two questions of, well, we know that all these, all cops are racist and all cops are, you know, you know, by what standard, like define that, where are you getting that? That's actually coming from uh, a worldview that is anti-authority, right? There, so there's the whole defund the police movement is, and the, is saying basically the idea of criminality is racist. And we need to move beyond that to this enlightened perspective, um, which is just unbiblical, right? So depending on who you're engaging with, whether they're a Christian or non-Christian, that would look like a very different conversation to me. Um, but so does it affect it? Yes. Um, if someone has an allegation against authority, we should take that seriously. Right? And we should honor due process and how we do that. If someone has a, you know, all authorities are this, that's not a morally serious person. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, okay. I can say all people are whatever, like, but let's talk about reality here. Um, where is this coming from? You know, wh- how are you coming to this place? That's what I would want to get at. Does that make sense? Yeah. Steve, I think it's a real I'll use a word that's a quite a funny humorous that people want justice. Yeah. I don't think people really want justice. Right. Where people who put the hell or sit. Right. Really are people really looking for justice. So social justice can all be all that you get from social injustice. And that, that's where I think Proverbs 28 is helpful. Uh, evil men do not understand justice. And they really, if, if they really wanted true justice, they would repent. Because <laughs> they would know that the true justice they're going to get is coming hard and fast, and it's eternal hellfire and damnation. Like, that's justice. Uh, that's what you deserve. Um, so it's, uh, of course, it's taking longer than, I mean, I knew it would, but on page 18, I have some, I just want to pull out one definition. Uh, so the third definition down in 18, social justice. 
Uh, social justice is notoriously difficult to define and often goes without definition. However, in general, it is a movement aimed at achieving the aims identified through applying neo-Marxist categories, and I will fill this out, to contemporary society. And so it's, it's applying these categories of oppressor and oppression, okay? And William Young notes, its course concept, while often amorphous, ill-defined, changing shape, is the redistribution of resources and advantages to the disadvantaged to receive social and economic equality. So it's looking and saying, <clears throat> you know, the average net worth of an uh, African-American is like 11,000, of a white American is, is it 40 or 140,000? I forget. That's, that's an inequality, it's unjust, and we need to redistribute resources so that it's just, okay? This school district in wealthy suburban Philly gets this many dollars, this school district in inner city Philly gets this many dollars, that's unjust, and we need to redistribute resources to make it just, okay? That, that's what the concept of justice is <clears throat> very much, it's not that there's nothing to that, but it's very much an appeal to envy. You have something I don't have, and, and that's not fair. Okay? Which again goes back to your understanding and definition of justice. And it also goes back to your understanding of what do I deserve? Okay? Because, because God... He didn't, he didn't make us fair, right? I mean, Brent's much better looking than anybody else. That's unfair. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, so just like, we're, we're not, we're not fair, we're not equal, right? We have disproportionate everything. And it doesn't seem like God's real concerned about that. That doesn't seem to trip him up. You know? Yeah. And it, so it's interesting that, well, I don't want to get into cultural commentary. <coughs> Go ahead, Mike. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And, and, you know, I like Matt Chandler. He's a good guy, but he said, he's affirmed that. You know, that as, as a white person, he said, I have a bag of tools available to me that others don't. Okay, well, again, what I really want to say is, what do you mean by that? And by what standard? Right? I'm sure you do have certain tools. But, it, but because of what? Because you're white? Because you're a man? Because you live in Texas? Because you live in America? Because, like, like, you have privileges uh, living in America uh, that are unimaginable in most of the world. It, I will make my cultural commentary. The thing that's interesting is that most of these protesters are rich, liberal, white kids. Some of the most privileged people on the planet are out there destroying cities in the name of justice. That's just interesting. Right. Okay, um, I'm not going to be able to cover all this, but I, I want to... Let me just hit a couple things. And then I want to talk about some common. Uh, on page 12, talk about the fall, how the fall introduced injustice, some of the important continuing effects of that. So obviously, the big one is you have a new voice interpreting reality and understand that's what the serpent's doing. Did God really say, 
raising questions about God's justice. God's holding out on you, right? That's his attack. God's unjust. And then he directly contradicts, you will not surely die. That's a new vision of justice and injustice. Okay? And so that, that's baked into this fallen world. Uh, the, the just curse of God on this world and everyone on it. Right? What we experience every day in our frustrations uh, was God's justice. It wasn't the fullness of God's justice. The flood's a little closer to the fullness of God's justice. Right? But when you have to weed your garden and, you know, when you can't, uh, you know, you're trying to get one thing done and eight other problems spring up and, like, you know, like just all the everyday, like that's, it's a cursed world. It's a fallen world, and that's what we got to live with, and that's justice. Okay. Uh, third, individual guilt. I want to get at this because of some of the, you know, we need to confess the sins of our ancestors. Uh, if you look at especially Ezekiel 18, uh, he's speaking directly to this. What do you mean by repeating the proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Meaning, the fathers did something bad, and the children reap the consequences. All right. He says, as I live, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well. The soul of the son is mine. The soul whose sins shall die. And in his, go read Ezekiel 18 later, because he talks about, well, but what if the father's wicked and the son's righteous? Well, then guess what? The father gets punished and the son gets rewarded, and vice versa. What if the father's righteous and the son's wicked? And the father gets rewarded and the son's good. You know. There's this individual accountability. It doesn't mean that we don't have any broader, I think Americans are way too individual. Okay? Um, of course we have broader responsibility and accountability. And, and it could be uh, proper for an institution, say, I think the Presbyterian Church of America might have done this, the SBC might have done this, where they repented for some of their stances towards slavery in the past. I think that could be appropriate. But if, if they're saying, they're not saying we are guilty of that, like we did this, but they're saying we're part of an institution that took an unbiblical stance. That could be an appropriate thing because there's a direct um, and clear connection to say that I, as a white person, am guilty in, of slavery in America is, is just fails on so many levels, right? And one of the resources we recommend to you at the end is this Just Thinking podcast, and it's two uh, African-American guys who speak very clearly and helpfully on this. And one of them talks about, look, I'm a descendant of slaveholders, not slaves, slaveholders in Africa, right? And so when you say every white person is innocent, or guilty, and every black person is innocent, it's way too simple, okay? We, we've got to, it's not biblical justice. We have to apply biblical justice. What does this mean? How do we engage with this? So individual guilt does go beyond that, but that, that's the, the core of it. Uh, uh, page 14 we should care for others according to our God given vocations and as he providentially arranges us and so you see these verses and again it wouldn't be hard to multiply uh, religion that is pure and undefiled before the God, God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction keep oneself unstained from the world and James 2 he talks about faith without works is dead Galatians 6 I already alluded to that so there, there is a social a societal obligation and effect that we have as Christians there must be fruits right of believing in God does that mean that if you're made aware of a problem 
If you don't address that problem, you're not doing justice. Simply, no. More helpfully, it's, well, what's the problem and what's my uh, relation to the problem? So if I'm made aware of a problem of one of, one of my children and I don't do anything about it, that's very different than, you know, um, so if you didn't adopt a child when Doug Hayes spoke on that other Sunday, did you not do justice? You were made aware of suffering in the world, right? Did you not do, are you, are you just cold, unfeeling, selfish Americans, right? Well, uh, no, <laughs> like, like, could you be sure? But, but you can also look at that situation and say, I just, I can't do that right now. Right? Because there's, there's lots of, again, this is, it can sound cold, but there's lots of kids who are starving. There's loads of injustice in the world. And we're not called to carry all that. We're called to carry, you know, there's a, there's a radiating level of responsibility. Starting with our families, churches, right? It widens out. And that's what God calls us to. And that can allow us, uh, that that ought to um, humble us. Like, holy cow, I am really responsible for my family. Right? And so when I, uh, and, that, and that's what, you know, the older I get, the more I think, five kids. Holy cow. Like, that is a lot of responsibility. That and, and and the problems and the drama and the you know health issues and relational issues and, and just that's a lot. Um, and if I don't fulfill those responsibilities, I'm, I'm creating problems. But but even just by I, I took out this verse, but there's a verse in Exodus um, where if a man takes a second wife. He's not to reduce the food, clothing, or sexual intimacy of his first wife. And, I, you know, there's all kinds of issues in that, obviously, and she's a slave. And it, so I just didn't want to get in the weeds. But, but there was an obligation as a husband. That's what you should provide for your wife. That's doing justice as a husband. Right? So if you want to use that as a new, you know, code word for uh, sexual intimacy, you can do that. Right? Do justice. Um, but, but isn't it interesting that that's how the Bible talks about that? Like, that's what the Bible expects of a, a husband towards his wife. That's a, that's a just expectation. Uh, and you have these expectations. So when you, when you provide for your families, when you discipline and educate and clothe and train your kids, when you, like, you are doing justice. Because if you don't do that, what's going to happen? Somebody else is going to have to deal with all the problems that you've created by failing to fulfill your roles. So you're actually doing justice. Sometimes I think we can think, well, of course I love my family. It's like, well, I mean, really? (laughs) Don't you recognize what a sinner you are and how selfish you are? There should be no of course to me loving anybody. Me loving anybody is the grace of God in my life. So me loving and being faithful in my family is God at work, and it's me fulfilling what he's called me to do. And so I'm doing justice by going to work every day and earning my paycheck and you know providing for my family and disciplining my children and 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 playing baseball and like all those things are actually it's just doing do justice I think is as in one way 
become way too narrow and in another way blown up into something. And it's like, no, it's much broader than that. It's just all that you do, all that God's called you to do, you're to do it fully out of love for God and love your, for your neighbor according to what God calls you to do. And as you do that, you're doing justice. You're acting justly. You're acting righteously. Okay? And so that's where I think Micah 6, 8 uh, is actually a wonderful verse that gets at that very simply. Right? Love kindness. Do justice. Walk humbly before your God. That's what you're called to do. Right? You see it too in, in um, Thessalonians. I don't remember where I put that. Um, uh, bottom of 16. Uh, to aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs and work with your hands as we instructed you so you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You're not going to hear that verse in a missions conference. Right? But keep your nose down and keep it clean and do your work and don't be dependent on others. That's what God calls you to. You know what I mean? Like, and that's a glorious life. It's a glorious life. I'm not... Obviously, I'm not anti-missions. I'm just saying there can be this, here's a glorious life. No, no, here's a glorious life. Right? What, what's God called you to? And how do you, how do you walk that out? So, um, okay. Lots of other stuff I'd love to talk about, but you can read through it later. I just, let's go to page 20 real quick. Um, As I was thinking through, what are some common, unrecognized, unjust behaviors today? And I, I alluded to this with the, the idea of accusation, uh, but slander. So spreading a false report about others with the intent to do them harm. We just saw that in the story of Absalom, where David's fleeing before Absalom, and Ziba comes and says, Mephishtosheth has left you, and he thinks he's going to be made king, and... David gives him half, or actually all of Mephibosheth's uh, possessions. Like, that's slander, right? And we, we actually hear slanderous reports a lot. It is a, uh, I mean, how much, like, I, I, this really isn't a political statement. I think it happens with every president, uh, I do, although I do think Trump is in a class of his own. How much slander has there been about Trump? I mean, the accusations that later proved to be Invented, fabricated, you know, a slander. And, and we've had four years of that. Right? Again, I'm not saying anything about Trump as a man. I'm just saying that this is the context of our political discussion. Gossip, passing along a bad report behind someone's back for an unjust reason. Um, that is exceedingly common. You know, it's funny. We were, so we were back in my hometown, Buffalo Center, Iowa, 850 people. And we were there three days or whatever. And I can't tell you how many gossip reports I heard in those few days. Catching up on, you know, so-and-so with this and that. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and so we have to recognize when you're hearing a bad report about someone else, if you don't have biblical standards of justice, they're going to be defamed in your mind and heart. You know, so... Uh, pick on Braun because he's gone to a family event, right? So you won't believe what Braun did, right? He, he told me, you know, and I tell you, and if you're not thinking with biblical justice, in the name of compassion or help or whatever term you want to put on it, 
you can, you can, oh, that's terrible. I'm so sorry. I can't believe he did that to you. What did you do? You condemned him. You judged him in your mind and heart based on the testimony of a single witness. That's what gossip is. Right? And so it perpetuates injustice. And it happens all the time. All the time. Very widespread. Lying, obviously. Uh, busybody. This is busybody usurpation. Um, uh, I want to talk about this a minute. Busybody is a per- and I use herself because the Bible often speaks about it in reference to women. So First Timothy five, uh, Paul's talking about younger widows that they should remarry. But it's a person who inserts herself in a situation that does not rightly concern her, even with an intent to help, quote unquote. Um, and so. He's talking about that, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. And, and what this comes down to a lot of times is that question of jurisdiction, right? So is this a situation that you should actually be involved in? It, you think you're helping, but, and, and you could help. Like, you know, somebody's going through a, a hard situation, I'm going to bring them a meal, or I'm going to go over and spend time with them. Totally legitimate, right? It can be a very loving thing to do. But then what can often happen is you become the confidant and you start to hear about this, that, and the other thing and all the wickednesses that have been perpetuated against this person, right? And then you start to take up an offense for that person. You start to insert yourself into something that was not your concern. So instead of saying, hey, wait, what, why are you talking to me about? Like, I'm, I'm happy to, to be with you and bring you a meal, but, but this stuff, like, you need to go to that person, right? That's what Matthew 18 says. If your brother sins against you, go, have you gone to him? Well, no, he's so different, right? And, and so uh, the busybody gets themselves entrapped in situations uh, and, take, and taking up offenses that they should have never gotten into in the first place, right? That's, a, that's not an uncommon sin. Uh, usurpation is not an uncommon sin. So a person who seeks to exercise authority that's not been granted to him, most often in decision-making, but it could be other things. Uh, and so Korah's rebellion is the classic example of this. And, and you see in verse 3 that is offended with Moses and Aaron. He's, he's recruited 250 men. And he says, you've gone too far. And listen to his appeal. All in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Right? And of course, they didn't exalt themselves. God appointed them as leaders. So as a parent, you've seen this with your children, right? Where the one child is enforcing your rules on the other child, you know? Even though that child often disobeys those same rules, but, you know, they're, they're the enforcer. And, and I'm often saying to my kids, you're not the police, you're not mommy, you're not daddy. <laughs> like, you're usurping authority that's not yours, Right? And you're creating problems for yourself because you're trying to step into things that God hasn't given you to carry, right? And so how, how often does that happen? If you're a parent, you've experienced that. If you're an employer, you've experienced that where people you know, um, think you're doing everything wrong and they're going to tell you how you should be doing it better, right? Uh, we experience it a fair bit as pastors. And, and there's a difference, right? There's a difference between giving counsel, and presuming and taking authority that's not yours to take. Like, I should be the one to make these decisions. Okay. Is, th- is that what God's called you to? So, 
that that's but that's a justice issue. But it's also it's also if you know people who and I, I feel like I grew up in a home like this um, have basically have critique for everyone, and they're always just kind of on the verge of blowing up, you know, and everything's just kind of always just so hard and so contentious and. And, and nobody else is ever doing it right. Uh, I, think, I think that's often behind a lot of that. Like, brother, you're not, you're not meant to carry these things. That's not, like, just focus on what God has called you to. And don't, you know, and that's where some of the social justice stuff, like, oh, well, you know, this whole country is unjust. Well, God hasn't called you to that. And then, yeah, the related one of flattery and recruitment. So making much of others in order to recruit them to your side in the dispute. And, of course, a lot of times that's what's going on in gossip and slander. Um, is I'm going to tell you something. Uh, and, and usually when I'm telling you this, I'm also telling you how great you are. You know, you're such a good friend. You really listen to me. You know, that sort of thing. Um, but what, and, and what Paul says, which I think is very insightful, which is not surprising that the Bible would be insightful, he says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. So why are they flattering you? Because they actually want you to flatter them. They're recruiting you to their side. They're building their army to, to take on, you know, whatever they need to take on. And that's unjust. So all these things are examples of a, of a failure to apply biblical standards of justice to the, these everyday situations that we face. So, make sense? Questions? Comments? Conundrums? All right. Um, that went longer than I hoped. Let's take a little break and let you... Stretch your legs, do whatever, and then we'll come back.